tell me that the soul is real and your soul must survive. Yet I see they're taking liberties with your souls and your lives. Don't tell me that you lack concern for all that you must be. Cause I know you know you must not be turned. And I know that you can see to seize the time. The time is now. Oh, seize the time. And you know how. You worry about liberty because you've been denied. Well, I think that you're mistaken, or then you must have lied. Cause you do not act like those who care. You've never even fought for liberty that you claim to lack. Or have you never thought to seize the time? The time is now, oh, seize the time, and you know how. Our first speaker today is going to be Sister Angela Davis. A lot of people like to call her professor, but we like to call her sister because we like her politics much more than a profession. Today, we're going to be dealing with issues, issues designed to make the moratorium, the so-called peace movement, relevant to black people. Like we know that we've been the undefeated champions of marching and demonstrating for the last 10 years. But somehow or another, when you get 30,000 people in the streets and only three or four of them are black, then you know that a movement, a very re a movement that is relevant, has somehow uh, avoided making itself relevant to black people. So today we want to lay down some ideas to try to solve some of those ills. I think that one of the most qualified speakers to deal with that will be Sister Angela Davis. Yeah, I'd just like to say that I like being called Sister much more than Professor, and I've continually said that if, if my job, if keeping my job means that I have to make any compromises in the liberation struggle in this country, then I'll gladly leave my job. This is my position. Now, there has been a lot of debate in the left sector of the anti-war movement as to what the orientation of that movement should be. And I think there are two main issues at hand. One group of people feels that the movement, the anti-war movement, ought to be a single issue movement, the cessation of the war in Vietnam. They do not want to relate it to the other kinds and forms of repression that are taking place here in this country. There's another group of people who say that we have to make those connections. We have to talk about what's happening in Vietnam as being a symptom of something that's happening all over the world, of something that's happening in this country, and in order for the anti-war movement to be effective, it has to link up with the struggle for black and brown liberation in this country, 
with the struggle of exploited white workers. Now, I think we should ask ourselves why that first group of people want the anti-war movement to be a single-issue movement. Somehow they feel that it's necessary to tone down the political content of that movement in order to attract as many people as possible. They think that mere numbers will be enough in order to affect this government's policy. But I think we have to talk about the political content. We have to talk about the necessity to raise the level of consciousness of the people who are involved in that movement. And if you analyze the war in Vietnam, first of all, it ought to become obvious that if the United States government pulled its troops out of Vietnam, that that repression would have to crop up somewhere else. And in fact, we're seeing that as this country is being defeated in Vietnam, more and more acts of repression are occurring here on the domestic scene. And I, I'd just like to point to the most dramatic one in the last couple of weeks, which is the chaining and gagging of Chairman Bobby Seale and his sentence to four years for contempt of court. I think that demonstrates that if the link-up is not made between what's happening in Vietnam and what's happening here, we may very well face a period of full-blown fascism very soon. Now, I think there's something perhaps more profound that we ought to point to. This whole economy in this country is a war economy. It's based on the fact that more and more and more weapons are being produced. What happens if the war in Vietnam ceases? How is the economy going to stand unless another Vietnam is created and who is to determine where that Vietnam is going to be? It can be abroad, it can be right here at home, and I think it's becoming evident that that Vietnam is entering the streets of this country. It's becoming evident in all the brutal forms of repression which we can see every day of our lives here. And this reminds me, because I think this is very relevant to what's happening in Vietnam, that is the military situation in this country. I saw on television last week that the head of the National Guard in California decided that from now on their military activities are going to be concentrated in three main areas. Now, what are these areas? First of all, he says disruption in minority communities. Then he says disruption on the campus. Then he says disruption in industrial areas. I think it points to the fact that they are going to begin to use that whole military apparatus in order to put down the resistance in the black and brown community, on the campuses, in the working class communities. I think that they are really preparing for this now. It's evident that the terror is becoming not just isolated instances of police brutality here and there, but the terror is becoming an everyday instrument of the institutions of this country. Chief of the National Guard said that outright. It's happening in the courts. There is terror in the courts. That judge, whose name is Hoffman, proved that he is going to 
take on the terror in the society and bring it into the courts, that he is going to use what is supposed to be a court of law, justice, equality, whatever you want to call it, in order to mete out all of these you know, fascist acts of repression. Now, something else has been happening in the courts, and I think this is an incident that we all ought to be aware of because it's another instance of terror entering into the courts. Down in San Jose not too long ago, a young Chicano was on trial, and I'd like to read a quote from the transcript, a quote by Judge, I think his name is Shargan, the fascist. He said, Mexican people, after 13 years of age, it's perfectly all right to go out and act like an animal. Maybe Hitler was right. The animals in our society probably ought to be destroyed because they have no right to live among human beings. You are lower than animals and haven't the right to exist in organized society. Just miserable, lousy, rotten people. Now this is a direct quote from the transcript that's happened within the walls of the courtroom. How can we fail to see that there's an intricate connection between that type of thing, between what happened to Bobby Seale, between the unwarranted imprisonment of Huey Newton and what's happening in Vietnam? We are facing a common enemy, and that enemy is Yankee imperialism, which is killing us both here and abroad. Now, I think anyone who would try to separate those struggles, anyone who would say that in order to consolidate an anti-war movement, we have to leave all of these other outlying issues out of the picture, is playing right into the hands of the enemy. I mean, it's an old saying. I think it's been demonstrated over and over that it's correct that once the people are divided, the enemy will be victorious. We will face defeat, and I think the attempt to isolate what's happening on the domestic scene from the war in Vietnam is playing right into the hands of the enemy, giving him the chance to be victorious. And I think there's a much more concrete problem. If you talk about the anti-war movement as a separate movement, what happens? What happens if suddenly the troops are pulled out of Vietnam? What happens if Nixon suddenly says we're going to bring all of the boys home? The people, the thousands and millions of people who had been involved in that movement would feel as if they had been victorious. I think perhaps a, a number of them would think that they could return home and relish in their victory and say that we have won completely ignoring the fact that Huey Newton is still in jail, that Erica Huggins and all of the other sisters and brothers in Connecticut are still in jail. This is what we are faced with if we cannot make the, that connection between the international scene and the domestic scene. And I don't think there's any question about it. We can't talk about protesting the genocide of the Vietnamese people without at the same time doing something to stop the genocide that, is, that liberation fighters in this country are being subjected to. 
And I think we can draw a parallel between what's happening right now and what's ha what happened during the 1950s. As the United States government was being defeated in the Korean War, more and more repression did occur on the domestic scene. The McCarthy witch hunt started. This is the Communist Party, the main target of that. I think we have to ask ourselves why that period served to completely stifle revolutionary activity in this country. People were scared, they ran away, they lost their families, they lost their homes. They did not resist. This is the problem. They did not resist. Right now, the Black Panther Party is the main target of the repression that's coming down in this society, and the Black Panther Party is resisting. And we all ought to talk about standing up and resisting this oppression, resisting the onslaught of fascism in this country. Otherwise, the movement is going to be doomed to failure. I think we can say that if the anti-war movement defends only itself and does not defend liberation fighters in this country, then that movement is going to be doomed to failure. Just as we can say also, if we in the black liberation movement and the liberation movement for all people, all oppressed and exploited people in this country, defend only ourselves, then we too will be doomed to failure. Within the whole liberation struggle in this country, the black liberation struggle and the, and the brown liberation struggle, there has continually been the sentiment against the American imperialist aggressive policies throughout this world. Because we have been forced to see that the enemy is American imperialism and although we feel it here at home, it's being felt perhaps much more brutally in Vietnam, it's being felt in Latin America, it's being felt in Africa. We have to make these connections. Either the animal has to see that unless it makes that connection, it's going to become irrelevant. And what we have to talk about now is a united force which sees the liberation of the Vietnamese people as intricately linked up with the liberation of black and brown and exploited white people in this society. And only this kind of a united front, only this kind of a united force can be victorious. Now, I think there's something else that we ought to consider when we try to analyze what has happened in the anti-war movement. And the anti-war movement hasn't just depended on numbers, it hasn't just depended upon attracting more and more people into the movement, regardless of their political orientation. If we remember, the debate a long time ago was whether the anti-war movement or the peace movement then should talk about demanding the cessation of bombing in Vietnam or whether it should talk about withdrawing troops. I think now it's very obvious that you have to talk about withdrawing all American troops from Vietnam. This has occurred only through the process of trying to raise the level of political consciousness of the people who are in that movement. And right now, what we have to talk about is not just withdrawing American troops, but also recognizing the South 
Vietnamese provisional revolutionary government. Now, I think we have to go a step further. This is what's happening inside the anti-war movement, but we have to take it further. And we have to say that if they, if we demand the immediate withdrawal of American troops in Vietnam, of the South Vietnamese Provisional Revolutionary Government, then we also have to demand the release of all political prisoners in this country, here. This is what we have to demand. And I think that the liberation struggle here sheds a lot of light on what's happening in Vietnam. It shows us that we can't just push for peace in Vietnam, that we have to talk about also recognizing a revolutionary government. There was a kind of a peace that was obtained right here in this country in a courtroom. That was the peace which Judge Hoffman forced on Chairman Bobby Seale by coercion, by gagging him and, bound, and binding him to his chair. This is not the kind of peace that we want to talk about in Vietnam, the peace in which you have a puppet regime representing the interests of this country in which you have other means of establishing the power of this government in Vietnam. And I think on a much more personal level, there's some parallels that we can draw. Some very profound parallels, I think. And we have to say that Bobby Seale's mother, who learned that he had been chained and gagged and that he had been sentenced to four years for contempt of court, is no less grieved than an American woman who finds out that her son has been captured in Vietnam. I think we have to say that, that Erica Huggins and Yvonne Carter were no less grieved when they found that their husbands, Bunchy and John, had felt liberation than an American wife would feel about her husband there. But there is a different political consciousness involved, and this is what we have to show the American people today. We have to show the American people that their sons and their husbands are being victimized by American imperialism. They are being forced to go and fight a dirty war in Vietnam. They are victims too, and they have to be shown that their true loyalties ought to be with us in the liberation struggle here and with the Vietnamese people in their liberation struggle there. Now, Bobby Seale once made a statement at a peace conference in Montreal that the front line of the battle against racism was in Vietnam. I think we have to ask ourselves what this means because a lot of people may have thought that what this means is that we can depend on the Vietnamese to win our battle here. This is not what he was saying. He was pointing to that inherent connection between what's happening there and what's happening here. And I think we can say, and I'm talking from personal experience, I was in Cuba this summer and I met with some representatives of the uh, South Vietnamese Provisional Revolutionary Government and they told us 
that we were, we revolutionaries in this country, were their most important allies. And not just because we take signs and march in front of the White House saying, U.S. government, get out of Vietnam, because rather because we are actively involved in struggling to satisfy the needs of our people in this country, and in this way, as they point out, we are able to internally destroy that monster which is oppressing people all over the country. I have to admit that I felt a little bit inadequate about that because what he's saying, what the representative of the uh, South Vietnamese Provisional Revolutionary Government was saying is that we ought to escalate our struggle in this country. We ought to talk about making more and more demands for the liberation of our people here, and this is going to be what they will depend on. This is going to help them in their liberation struggle. Now, I think that we ought to talk in the context of this upcoming march here and in Washington about the need to make simultaneous demands. And those demands ought to be immediate withdrawal of U.S. troops from Vietnam. There ought to be victory for the Vietnamese. There ought to be also recognition of the revolutionary government in South Vietnam. And I think this is perhaps most important. We ought to demand the release of political prisoners in this country. Just one last thing. You know, Nixon made a speech on November 3rd, I think it was, and he said something that we ought to take heed of, we ought to understand. He said, let us understand that the Vietnamese cannot defeat or humiliate government. Only Americans can do that. I feel that it is our responsibility to fight on all fronts, to fight on all fronts simultaneously to defeat and to humiliate the U.S. government and all the fascist tactics by which it is repressing liberation fighters in this country. Thank you very much. Right on. Now, that's, that's the way to get a message across. Is Terrence Hallinan here, also known as K.O. Hallinan. <laughs> Terrence Hallinan is one of the co-chairmen of Western Region Mobilization. Terrence understands uh, the problems here. Terrence was a lawyer for young brother Wayne Green that was tried on a very obvious trumped-up charge. He helped the brother beat it. He's, he's been active in the struggle here. He's been trying to make some active support for the struggle of the Vietnamese people. But we understand that Terrence is only one man. And there's a lot of people actively involved in the various factions and segments of the peace movement that have a long ways to go.
especially the, their eyesight is, is that they can see things 10,000 miles away, but we believe that it's very difficult to get to Vietnam without passing through Harlem or East Oakland or Fillmore. And you can't overlook one to see the other 10,000 miles away. Terrence is one of the few people that we know in the mobilization with the correct eyesight. By and large, it's going to be up to black people and the black communities to make people understand that our problem is not separate from the Vietnamese problem. But I think I'll let Terrence give you his perspective on it. Terrence Hallinan. Thank you, Messiah. I guess I don't have to feel guilty about taking credit for my father's defense of Wayne Green, but uh, was another member of the family. Well, um, I'd like to talk a little bit with you about the point that Messiah made, about whose responsibility it is, in fact, to make sure that this demonstration is a demonstration that's relevant to black people. Now, I can remember a long time ago when the civil rights movement was a very popular thing around this Bay Area and around in the country and people were sitting in and people were picketing and people were protesting and everything. And the call came up then for a compensatory solution to the problems, compensatory hiring, compensatory housing, compensatory other programs. A lot of people, myself included, made the point that this nation has a 200-year debt to black people. And it's a debt that we're not going to make up by on paper treating them equal, but only when we take extra steps and begin to find some sort of compensatory way to make up for the hell that we've visited black people with for 200 years in this nation. Well, of course, we have a lot of differences among the movement about this. A lot of the reverse discrimination, no, it has to be equal and even all the way around the Debate continued for some time, then it died down as people turned off into other issues. Well, it seems to me, finally, that in relationship to Vietnam, we have finally achieved that compensatory progress. I don't know if it's, in fact, I know it's not the same one we were seeking, but it's a compensatory thing nonetheless. There's 40,000 Americans dead now in Vietnam. 10,000 of those are black people. Now, that's a compensatory measure. That's not quite as compensatory as the number of black people on death row, but I think it shows a little bit about what this society thinks about the value of a black person's life. Likewise, it's not just on the death. What is happening as a result of that war? Prices are going up. There's uh, inflation. The value of money is going down. And who does that hit the worst? Of course, it hits the poor. And who are the poor? Again, we have black people with a compensatory proportion of the poor people without any doubt. You have Nixon trying to up unemployment in order to fight the inflation and in order to pay for the cost of the war in Vietnam. I don't have to tell you, of course, who is the first one fired just as who is the last one fired and who, in fact, it is that's paying for that. We have the domestic effects of the war in Vietnam coming home. And don't kid yourself, you can't fight an armed war 5,000 miles away without fighting an armed war at home. That just can't be done, and particularly when it's the most unpopular war in this nation's history. And repression is coming home. It's coming home to roost. And don't forget who the president of this United States is, the man who rose to fame on red baiting and repression in an earlier period. And his speech the other night 
made it clear that's exactly what he's got in mind for the American people, that he wants to continue that war by claiming that he's not getting out until the Vietnamese can handle it. And after all, that's why we got in in the first place. And at the same time, by maintaining peace and tranquility and support for the war here at home through repression. I don't have to tell you who's getting repressed. People are getting repressed all over this country, but certainly the black people are right out there in the front of it. One has only to look at the roster of the Black Panther Party leadership a year ago to understand what repression is or to compare the way Bobby Seale, and don't believe all the stuff about how Bobby Seale was disrupting that courtroom and was making the trial impossible. All he was attempting to do was to assert the rights that every defendant in America is supposed to have, to have a lawyer of his choice, and if they wouldn't let him have um, Charlie Gary, then to defend himself so as not to surrender his appeal point. He ob was objecting, but he was objecting only where it's proper. And in federal courts, if you don't object, then you've waived that objection. So he was doing everything right. But look at the way he was treated compared even to the way the other defendants are treated, not to say that they're not victims of this same thing. And I think that speaks quite as to who the repression is aimed at first and above all and who it's out to get. And we shouldn't kid ourselves about that. And you, first of all, should not kid yourselves about it. And don't forget, because don't forget, first of all, we're fighting a racist war. We're fighting a war against colored people in Southeast Asia. And that racism overseas, just like that repression overseas, is going to come home. And it's coming home right now. And there's no doubt about that thing. Why I'm saying these is I want to point out to you, brothers and sisters, that no one, and I mean no one, in this nation has a greater interest in ending that war in Vietnam and ending it now than black people do. And there's no doubt about that. But I want to also, brothers and sisters, be a little bit critical of you. And I'm sorry I have to do this, but time is so short. This demonstration is coming up in very rapid order. And I think that your organization and the black community as a whole has made a serious mistake in this demonstration and in organizing and building for it. And what that mistake is, is that you have relied on white people to make this demonstration relevant to your community. And that's not going to work. Now, it may be, I agree, people in the peace movement are a little more advanced and a little more progressive than the population at, at large. Maybe only four-fifths of them are racist instead of nine-tenths of them. But don't forget that this is a demonstration that right now is in the hands of white people that is being directed and guided by white people, and that is where the mistake has come about. Now, you know that there's been a big dispute, and I'm, I'm sure that Masai can tell you all about it. There's been quite a dispute in the organization of this demonstration. Well, that dispute, contrary to a lot of what you've heard, is not a sectarian dispute. It's not an organizational dispute. It's a political dispute, and it's a dispute over political questions. And those questions are first and foremost a dispute over the relevancy of the United Front policy, because that is what the fight in the organization of this demonstration has been about. And that takes a couple of forms. One is the single issue versus the multi-issue approach to this demonstration. Now, I don't know how many of you are even aware that one of the demands of this demonstration coming out of the Cleveland conference and carried on at least all of our material is Stop the repression, free all political prisoners. That is a demand of the march, to free all political prisoners. But how much have you heard about it? How much have you heard that point discussed? How much have you heard people take the platform and demand that political prisoners be freed and to spell out exactly what that is? There's another 
point at which we have some disagreement. And that's another point involving the united front. And that is to say whether we are going to work together and try to get some unity among this. Unity among those who are against the war, who are against the repression, who are against the racism that's coming down in our country now. Whether the radicals are going to work with the liberals and whether we're all going to come together in a massive, really massive demonstration and rally out there in the polo grounds. And believe me, believe me, that if any of you don't think it's an important thing that a United States senator or congressman or politically influential people participate in this rally and in this demonstration, then I would ask you to think about where Bobby Seale is right now and what plans certain people have in mind for him. You know, he's the first defendant I've ever known that's been sentenced to four years before he was even convicted. And there's a lot of people in this country who want to do Bobby Seale in, who want to put him away for the rest of his life or kill him if they can get away with it. And the kind of rally, the kind of demonstration that is held there in the polo grounds and along Geary Street, at which David Hilliard is going to speak, at which other people are going to speak, is going to be a very significant thing in determining what type of support Bobby Seale and the Black Panther Party has. Don't kid yourself about that. There's no doubt about that. And just in closing, I would like to reiterate the point that I made once again, that the mistake in the organization of this demonstration, and I would be the first to admit that as this demonstration is developed, it is not a real multi-issue demonstration. It is not relating to and it's not relevant in the black community, and there's no doubt about that. But I must say, first of all and foremost, it's your responsibility to make sure that this is a relevant demonstration. And I think we should begin right now to make plans to make sure that the Black Panthers and the black people have by far the largest and the most powerful and the most overwhelming contingent in that march. That you meet at Kimball Park at 9 o'clock with your banners and with your marching order and you go out and you join this parade and you make your presence felt and you make everyone aware of the fact that this is not just a struggle in Vietnam, but there's a struggle right here in America as well. And I would suggest that you begin right now to organize yourselves to plan how you can be in really massive forces out there in the polo grounds as well as in that march, and that you can make those polo grounds reverberate with the cry, stop the trial, free Bobby, free Huey, power to the people. Yeah, we definitely should give K.O. a hand, because it almost seems that if there's some people in the so-called peace movement, they want to make the struggle that's already started in this country a race struggle. I think what Hallinan was saying is very correct. We know who suffers the most from this struggle. We know that the black, the brown, the red, and the yellow make up the majority of our infantry troops, of our so-called shock troops. We're very much against the war in Vietnam. We know how to stop that shit, and we know how to bring the troops home. But we got to make our feelings known to all the people. And we're not talking about end the repression and free all political prisoners without naming some. We're talking about Huey Newton. We're talking about Bobby Seale. We're talking about hundreds of Panthers. We're talking about Brother Leotis, 
Down in Texas, we've got 30 years for two joints. We're talking about John Sinclair, the Minister of Information for the White Panther Party. Got a similar sentence, 30 years for two joints. And now they're trying to try him because some mysterious bombs went off in a CIA office in, this, in that town. We're talking about the Conspiracy 8. We're talking about dropping the charges on those un-American pinkos, those subversive ones, the same people like Dave Dillinger and Rennie Davis that the government sent to Hanoi to bring back American prisoners. Those same un-American subversives that have been the only ones to show the Vietnamese government that there's somebody here other than the black people that wants peace. When we moved, we said that we wanted Rennie Davis and Dave Dillinger to return to Hanoi to exchange some prisoners. The fascist pig Hoffman, he imposed an international gag then. He said, later for Rennie Davis and Dave Dillinger, they're on trial in my court, and I'll, do, I'll bust them like I busted the birthday cake. We made a motion that they be allowed to return to Hanoi, where they be met by Eldridge Cleaver, our Minister of Information, and under Eldridge's supervision, make sure that it, would, it wasn't going to be for no humanitarian purposes later for that. It's going to be for some revolutionary solidarity between black people in this country and the Vietnamese people who suffer from the same enemy. The judge denied the motion. Between Rennie Davis and Dave Dillinger, Tom Hayden, and a few other people, the only other prisoners that have been released have been released just on the goodwill of the NLF and, and the provisional revolutionary government. So since the government says no, they're not going anywhere, we have them on trial for causing the pigs to riot in Chicago, we say that we want the peace movement to select one or two representatives to go to Hanoi in place of Dave Dillinger and Rennie Davis. And that these representatives will be met there by Eldridge Cleaver and set the precedent. The precedent can, that can free all political prisoners. I'm talking about the brothers in Los Siete. I'm talking about the brothers in SNCC who've been 10 years on trumped-up charges, narcotics bust, disturbing the peace bust. I'm talking about the brothers who just got indicted down that college in North Carolina for that shootout down there that lasted two days. The brothers were still in jail behind the first armed shootout between the National Guard and the people that took place at a Texas campus. We're talking about freeing all political prisoners in a very meaningful way. It's, all, it's not separate from those who believe in God and apple pie and America. Because if they believe that, there's a whole lot of people in prison who are prisoners of war, prisoners of an unjust and fascist war. And these people are languishing in jails all over Vietnam. But the American government doesn't give about its soldiers, its pilots, its black people, or peace. So it's going to be up to all the people, white and black, to make it known that this is what we demand. That if you're for America and apple pie, then fly your flag and eat your pie and try to get your prisoners free. And keep your goddamn troops out of Vietnam. Keep your troops out of the black community. If you really want peace, you're going to have to release the political prisoners. Address, address yourself meaningfully to the just demands of the black people and the black communities. There's no other road to peace. There's no such thing as a single issue road to peace. There's no such thing as a nonviolent road to peace. Because we say that for peace to be, to be a just peace, that the ruling class in America owes the Vietnamese people a blood debt for the lives they've taken. And we say that Rockefeller, Nixon, 
Humphrey, Johnson, put them up against the wall and blow them away. We think that Batista should be handed over to Castro. We want to buy Chiang Kai-shek a one-way ticket to the mainland. But there's blood debts to be paid. And we're not about to forget him for any humanitarian bullshit. We want black people to make their feelings known. Do black people want their political prisoners freed? Do you want them freed? Do you want Huey Newton free? Do you want Bobby free? Do you want all your political prisoners free? What about the political prisoners in the mother country? What about the conspiracy eight? Do you want them free? We want freedom for all political prisoners. And when we see the pictures of Vietnamese tied up, blindfolded and gagged because they're suspected of being Viet Cong, we know just what's happening. We know just what's happening. We know that the pig jacks you up, tells you you ain't got no ID, driver's license expired, you fit the description of a cat who burglarized a candy store six months ago, and away you go. You're suspected of being a criminal, just like the Vietnamese people. And the reason is because we both demand the right for self-determination. We want these fascist pigs out of our community. We want control of the institutions in our community. We know that it's our constitutional right and our moral right to defend ourselves against armed attack by fascist pigs. This is our crime and this is the crime of the Vietnamese people. And we know that the relationship between black people and the Vietnamese people is much stronger than the relationship between these so-called peaceniks. We know that there are people who are 100% for America. They want an end to this war like the wives of the pilots who had a Steve Canyon attitude, a John Wayne attitude about their husbands until they were shot down. Now they want an end to the war. Now they want their husbands back. These don't cut them loose and send them on home. Of course, it had nothing to do with people dropping thousand-pound bombs on Vietnamese villages from 10,000 feet and swearing that they only kill communists, that they only attack military targets. But we can stand with those women and we'll say right with them, right on, we want them prisoners of war at home. Keep them out of other people's country and out of other people's business. And in exchange, we want the same rights, freedom, the right to go about their business, to meet the basic needs and desires of the people for all political prisoners in this country, and especially Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale. It's a waste of time talking about the Constitution because the Constitution is irrelevant to black people and it's too stiff to be used as toilet paper. The Constitution is useless. They told us in 1857, Chief Judge Taney, Chief Counsel of the Supreme Court, he said, later for this nigger, that black people ain't got no rights, that white people are bound to respect, and we didn't write this paper for him anyway. He's only three-fifths human, and the other two-fifths are shadow property, like furniture, just like an ashtray or a statue. So don't come in here talking about your constitutional rights. That was in 1857. Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Now in 1959, we see our Chairman Bobby Seale shackled, gagged, and brutalized by a bunch of niggas who specialized in PE majors and agriculture majors and then ended up federal marshals. Black people know about the chains. We didn't forget the chains. 
and the chains have become handcuffs and they've modified them and updated them and now they got thumb cuffs. We didn't forget about them, we know about them. We know that the Constitution has never been relevant for us. If anybody thinks it's relevant or likes it, right on. It was copied by the Vietnamese government. When I say government, I'm not talking about them bootlickers in South Vietnam. I'm talking about brothers who followed Ho Chi Minh all them years, running out the French, and now running out and beating the shit out of the Americans. We know that that same Bill of Rights was copied by the Vietnamese and it's been copied by people around the world. And it says that whenever a government has perpetrated a long train of abuses on a people, then it's the people's right to put that government in the toilet and flush it away. We got historic proof from 1857 and before that from 1642 up until 1969 that the courts and the Constitution are a bunch of bullshit, not meant for us. Time to use other means. And that guns don't negate demonstrating. The two go hand in hand, especially if we're attacked. But we're going to turn out on the 15th in mass and make our perspective known on this. Our perspective is the nearest thing to the Vietnamese perspective. Who wants peace more than black people in this country and the Vietnamese? And it ain't for humanitarian reasons. And it ain't because of inflation, because there wasn't no jobs for us before. The welfare cuts was already on the make. It didn't make no difference. Inflation has so small effect on it. So they cut a few poverty programs, and a few more of us have to go back to school. That's all. We know the very direct reasons the land, the bread, the housing, the education, the clothing, the justice, and the peace are very relevant issues to black people and the Vietnamese. And we're going to make our, our, our stand on these known. In addition, we're going to give the peace movement something to do. But on the 15th, we're not going to allow people to go home, sit down, and vacation till the next fall offensive while black people have fascist pigs running the muck in their communities for the rest of the year, for the next 10 months. We want the peace movement to take up a stand against everything Nixon does. Nixon's getting ready to have a meeting with Bootlicker Sato, Prime Minister of Japan. We want the peace movement to take a stand against this, take an active stand, to have demonstrations, simultaneous coordinated demonstrations with the students in Japan to block this, because Japan is a stepping stone for starting wars in Asia, wars that are already going on in Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, and Vietnam can be stepped up, but they have to use Japan. So they're going to get a security pact going with Japan to keep Japan from being subverted by countries that Japan has been aggressing against for the last 100 years. We're against it. We want the Communist Party USA to contact the Communist Party Japan and say, look here, on the day that they had that meeting, we're going to bring the walls down. We're going to make the sky fall on them. We're going to show them that we're very much against this bullshit. We know that the Japanese students don't be jiving. When they hit the streets, they bring their helmets and their long sticks and shields. And they're very much against it. They don't like their country being used as a stepping stone for aggression. And we know that that's not move. And we say that the peace movement, if they really want peace, they, sh they should move on this. And all fraternal organizations, the New Mole, uh, BayPAC, all the mobilization organizations should gear to this. And every time Nixon moves, we should come down on his ass like white on rice, as old folks used to say. 
and tell him if there ain't no moves to make no more wars, that we're going to just sit back and endorse with silence. That if the mother country, the white people in the mother country, endorse that, then they've also endorsed the aggression and murder and brutality that goes on in the black community. So on the 15th, we'll make our demands known, and we'll make them known in a way of fraternity and brotherhood, but with some solid criticism, because we know that racism is very rampant and very real in this country. Is Charles Gary here yet? Right on. I think that Gary is just, he's been, he's had a couple of meetings with Bobby recently. He'll be able to give you some very real, concrete reasons why we say, let's be in the streets on the 15th. Part of the people. I saw Bobby yesterday afternoon, and he translated a message to give you. You want to hear it? I won't be doing it justice because there's only one Bobby Seal, and there's only one Bobby Seal who can express himself in the manner that he does. But I will try to give you a poor paraphrasing. He said many other things, but the, the message that he particularly wanted to get over to you, I just left the San Francisco State College where he gave a message there which is similar to the one that I'm going to relate to you. The interest at the San Francisco State College at the rally that they were having, I am told, is the largest they've had since the strike last year. Bobby says that it's very, very important that the people rally around the moratorium demonstration on Saturday, November the 15th. It's important that the entire community, when I say the community, I'm talking about the entire community of the United States, rally and express themselves on the question of mor the moratorium and stop this horrible holocaust that's going on some 10,000 miles from here and the destruction of the Vietnam people. But he said that that's not sufficient. If it's just going to stop there and it's not going to incorporate what's happening here in the United States, then the people who are supporting the peace movement in Vietnam are only paying lip service to to fighting imperialism. He points out that you have to fight not only imperialism abroad, but you have to fight imperialism here in the United States. To wit, in the ghettos, the black ghettos, the brown ghettos, the yellow ghettos, and the red ghettos. And he translates imperialism to mean local fascism or the police state. He translates fascism into the most diabolical form of police action against a particular segment of the community, the hunger of the community, the lack of employment in the community, lack of proper medical attention, lack of proper housing, and lack of freedom to be able to move around without some police officer stopping you and harassing you or shooting you in the back when he thinks you've committed a crime and executing you right on the spot without even the benefit of a trial or without even the benefit of even being gagged in the courtroom. 
Now this is the message that Bobby wants to translate to you and to pass on to you, to think about. I want to talk to you a little bit about the facts of what happened in Chicago in relationship to the Chicago 8 and what happened to Bobby Seale particularly and what we intend to do about it. In April of 1969, I was designated by the entire Chicago 8 to be the lead counsel or the trial counsel, the chief counsel, in the defense of that conspiracy trial. As you all know, it's a case of first impression. It's a case where the Nixon administration is using its testing powers and its great powers of its governmental office to be able to stifle and chill the right to express yourself. They were prosecuted as with the intent that these defendants crossed the state line with the intent to go and disrupt the 1968 Democratic Convention, as if anybody could have disrupted that convention that was not already disrupted before anybody even thought about it. That was the crime. And in addition to the opposition and the exposition of the war in Vietnam, Bobby Seale was also representing that was talking about the war in the ghettos, the war exposing the hunger and the deprivation that I don't have to spell out, and the conduct of the police in the ghetto, shooting men and women without even the benefit of a trial in the ghetto, or when they even step out of the ghetto as the young man did when he went to the bank in San Francisco and who was shot to death and shot in the back. Up came the Chicago 8 with their motion. After the judge had denied each and every motion that we had made for dismissal of the case and the fact that the uh, evidence was obtained through wiretapping, which was illegal, and that the law was unconstitutional, that the law itself was intended to stifle and chill the expression of freedom of speech under the First Amendment, and you name it, and we did it. Outstanding lawyers prepared these pretrial motions, and the judge denied each and every one of them, and we finally came to the motion of the continuance. We thought at least, out of some 15 motions, we might have the courtesy of winning one, which only meant continuing the case for six weeks, in spite of the fact that the judge, during the period of time that this Chicago 8 trial was set for, had set other cases. It was denied under the pretense, and I say pretense because we intend to say this to the appellate court and to the United States Supreme Court, if it's necessary. Since Bobby had gone to Chicago and he was without counsel, Bill Kunstler, representing three of the other defendants, file an appearance for, for the simple reason so Bobby would have some contact between the seven other defendants and Bobby well, since he was confined in jail. And it was the only purpose that Bill Kunstler filed that appearance. And the judge knew that. And with the slightest amount of investigation, if he didn't know it, would have known that. 
It was obvious he was told for four solid weeks that that was the only reason that Kunstler became attorney of record for him. Kunstler never had an attorney-client relationship with Bobby Seale. They never had a preparation between the two of them. And yet under that pretense for four solid weeks, every time Bobby would get up and say, Your Honor, I would like to cross-examine this witness. He's talking about me. He's lying about me. I want to cross-examine him. He would say, Mr. Marshall, whoever that is, have him sit down. Whoever that is, you know, as though as some hayseed that's standing in front of him. He says, I'm Mr. Seale. And at one time, the judge finally called him young man, and, the, and Seale turned around and says, listen here, old man. He's going to refer to him as young man, then he's, Bobby Seale has the right to reciprocate and give the same dignity to the questioner. You know, what's, you know this kind of stuff goes on. For four solid weeks, Bobby was courteous, requested his rights to cross-examine the witnesses, requested his right to exercise his rights under the Sixth Amendment. Now, some of you may not know what that Sixth Amendment is. I think some of my legal friends don't know what it is. And simply, amongst other things, an amendment to the Constitution of the United States that says a person who has been accused of a crime has the right to assistance of counsel. You know, we lawyers have taken that section and practically emasculated it to a point where we now feel the minute you hire one of us as your lawyer, from there on you keep your mouth shut and you have nothing to say about the case. But the Constitution says that the lawyer is only to assist the defendant in the defense of his case. And if that's the case, and that is the case, and that's the Constitution. Bobby Seale had the right to defend himself, and he had the right to discharge all of his attorneys, which he did two days after the trial commenced, before any evidence was taken at the termination of the jury. Four days after the trial had commenced, the judge locked up the jury under the pretense that two of the jurors had received a note that said, we're watching you, signed, the Black Panthers. Well, you know the Black Panthers don't talk that way. The Black Panther Party, if they've got anything to say, they say it. They don't go through this monkey business of sending anonymous notes. This anonymous notes business is something that the silent majority does. You know, during the Huey Newton trial, I received almost 300 of these silent majority notes, all unsigned, with all kinds of disfigurations and all kinds of innuendos, and you can imagine what are some of the things that were said. So obviously, whatever these, these two notes were, were not any part of the Black Panther Party. It was done for the, of creating the kind of hysteria that followed where all of the jurors were finally locked up and they couldn't go home, and blaming the Black Panther Party. Under these circumstances, is it any... any thought at all, any kind of wonderment that Bobby Seale would sit there and worry 
about the fact that he was being singled out, being denied his right to his own counsel, and be placed into a position where he can't even defend himself. He was gagged immediately at the beginning of that trial, and it only became a gagging in a physical sense where the world could see it, where on the fifth week, after he'd been courteous for four solid weeks, he finally said to the judge, if it is your idea of justice to deny me the rights under the Sixth Amendment, my right to have counsel and the right to defend myself, and if it's your idea to deny me the rights under the Thirteenth Amendment where I'm emancipated to the point where I have the same rights as white people do to defend myself, if it's your idea to deny me those basic rights, then I say under those conditions, you are a blatant racist pig. Now you notice and you note that Bobby did not call him a racist blatant pig. He gave conditions. And if the judge met those conditions, and he apparently met those conditions in his own mind because he immediately gagged him and chained him like a wild animal. Now that's the record. Now that's the record. When for three days or four days, Bobby was chained like a wild animal. He was gagged. And at times his gag was such that it stopped the circulation in the entire cerebral area, where he told me yesterday, and he told the news media, the KNEW, no, not the KNEW, yes, the KNEW, and also the KQED TV station, that they gagged him to a point, and they tightened the wrappers around him so tightly that circulation stopped, and he thought for a while that he was out of this world. Why? Because he had the temerity as a black man to stand before a white court and to say, I want to defend myself. Now, I'm sure that the judge will deny this. I'm sure that the judge will fall back on the technicality. But, friends, I want to say this to you. The record is clear. When Bobby two days after the trial commenced, demanded to, to make an opening statement and to take on the cross-examination of witnesses, the United States Assistant Attorney Richard Schultz got up in court and he said, Your Honor, if you were to grant the right to Mr. Seal to defend himself, there will be a mistrial in this case in two days. You know, I'm reminded that in 1948, when the communist leaders were tried for a conspiracy under the Smith Act, and they were singled out almost as badly as the Black Panther Party is today. I say almost as badly because there's been no group in American history that I know of the type of persecution that the Black Panthers have been receiving. Now, those leaders of the Communist Party had outstanding lawyers defending them. And yet, in spite of the fact that there were outstanding lawyers defending them, Eugene Dennis, who was the chairman of the Communist Party in 1948, was permitted under the Constitution of the United States to defend himself.
He made an opening statement, he cross-examined witnesses, and he made closing arguments to the jury. Now, in spite of the fact that the communists of that day were considered the low life of, of humanity, as bad as the establishment thought they were, still Eugene Dennis was a white man, and they permitted him to defend himself, and Bobby Seale, a black man in 1969, is not given the privilege to defend himself. Not because he doesn't have the intelligence to defend himself, because the judge made no, had no hearing on whether Bobby Seale recognized the seriousness of the charges and how serious it would be if he defended himself, but he took it upon himself right out of hand to deny that right to Bobby Seale. And yet when he sentenced him in a savage manner to four years in a penitentiary, for the right to exercise that right. He said, now Mr. Seal is a very, very, very intelligent man. So we have in the record by the judge's own admission that Bobby Seal is a very, very, very intelligent man. And yet he's been denied his basic rights. It's high time that the bar in America recognize the fact that the police state is rapidly being cast upon us and it's showing its ugly head in the courtroom as well as on the streets. Even in Nazi Germany when they were trying to frame the Bulgarian leader of the Communist Party, Dimitrov, and they were trying to frame him and charge him with burning down the Reichstag. The Reichstag is the legislative body, the house where the legislature meets. Even there, where Dimitrov couldn't trust any of the Nazi lawyers or the Weimar Republic lawyers who were still casting their allegiance to law and order under Nazi Germany, under Hitler, he didn't take them as lawyers and he certain American lawyers under the American Civil Liberties Union volunteered to go there to defend him, including Arthur Garfield Hayes, who was an outstanding civil libertarian at the day, and the Nazi courts would not permit him to participate in the trial. He could only stay there as an observer, but they did let, they did allow Dimitrov to defend himself. He's defended himself so successfully that he accused the Nazi government and the Nazi party were deliberately burning the Reichstag and trying to blame the communists for it. And he was successful and eventually free. If it can be done in Nazi Germany, why can't it be done in so-called democratic America? Thank you.